Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us for today's AIAA Los Angeles Las Vegas section uh, section E meeting, E Town Hall meeting on November 6, 2021. Uh, today we have very exciting uh, presentation and a very top uh, distinguished lecture. Uh, speaker, uh, and this is the beginning of a series of lectures uh, on this uh, uh, amazing topic. Uh, so before that, we have few uh, logistics to go over. So first of all, thank you, thanks a lot for AIWA headquarters. They provide this very wonderful uh, uh, Zoom platform, actually very expensive. And uh, so, and the, they highly support us for our events. The recording and the podcast will be posted after the event. Thanks a lot to our speaker, uh, Mr. Paul Zamansky. Um, just for some short note that uh, during the talk, during the lecture, if you have any question, you are welcome to type in the yes. Q&A box uh, or wait till the end of presentation and click raise hand. You will be unmuted and uh, you will be able to speak out directly interact with the, uh, the speaker. So um, tentatively, the presentation is like uh, one hour, then yeah. followed by 30 minutes of Q&A and uh, networking if you stay. Yeah. So a few words about AIAA. AIAA is a national organization, but also have international presence. Our president is Mr. Basil Hassan. Our executive director uh, is uh, Mr. Daniel Dunbacher, he was the former program manager for the NASA uh, DCX, DCXA. And our section chair is Dr. Jeffrey Bruchel, is an AIAA fellow, uh, the Raytheon chief scientist. Unfortunately, he's busy today, so he asked me to tell, uh, welcome everyone and uh, uh, enjoy the event. So AIAA has uh, over 30,000 members across uh, multiple companies, countries, and companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, they are our corporate members. Our region is shaping the future of aerospace. And uh, AIAA is an a, 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 a organized professional organization of very long distinct history. It was uh, came from the merger in 1960 uh, from two distinct organizations, both founded in 1920s. One on aviation founded by the Wright brothers in the 1920s. The other one was the rocketry founded by Robert Goddard also in the 1920s. Uh, our, this is our different level of membership. Uh, young professionals should, should have been called early career professional. Uh, they have, uh, they are after college and but under 35 years old, but they are still professional. Uh, we are running a, a great discount, 50% off for early career professionals. And we also have educator, high school, college students. So once you join member, AIAA member, you can immediately use Engage, AIAA Engage to connect to members and experts around the world. Every day you will receive daily launch with great insider stories. Some people got opportunity from those uh, information. And of course, the monthly Aerospace America, very famous, a lot of very good articles and uh, uh, stories. And uh, you will enjoy a great discount for attending AIAA national forums. Uh, one thing is AIAA also publish, and it's a very important feature. And uh, you can connect to industry and also have awards. 
uh, one thing very important for AWS is to encourage, inspire people. Uh, so you do good jobs, you got awarded, encouraged, and you can advance your ranks uh, in AIWA. Uh, for example, our uh, section chair, Dr. Jeffrey Purcell is fellow, um, and uh, Mr. Steve Izakowicz from Aerospace Corporation is the president, president of Aerospace Corporation. He is also a fellow. Uh, Dr. James Wurz, the president of Michael Cosm, is also fellow, and uh, many more. And we have honorary fellow like uh, uh, Bill Gerstenmeier and uh, Dr. Mark Ruiz, Queen um, uh, Shadwell, uh, with uh, Buzz Aldrin, you know, Dr. Buzz Aldrin. And uh, we also have awards, the like Guggenheim Awards, Reed Awards, many things you got, you know, honor and uh, this uh, help people to advance their career. So student, if you are still a member, you can apply scholarship, attend, uh, attend the um, uh, annual regional student paper conference, attending the uh, Design, Build and Fly contest, rocket contest, and uh, one very important thing is we nationally, we have five major forums. Uh, next month, we'll have the AIWA Ascent in Las Vegas, but actually the online uh, events start on Monday, um, November 8th to 10th. Then again, uh, mm -hmm. also 15 to 17, uh, but the in-person in Las Vegas is, is only 15 to 17. You're highly welcome to, to uh, participate, to in to attend. <clears throat> so this is the five major national forums I mentioned. So a few words about local Southern California. Um, actually our speaker today actually very familiar with this area. He worked with uh, uh, SMC, uh, Space and Missile Center, now changed to Space Command. And uh, other, in, in addition, we also have many company, you know, you know, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be launched on December 18 by Northrop Grumman. It's made by Northrop Grumman. And with NASA JPL, SpaceX, Aerospace Corporation, Boeing, um, Virgin Galactic, Virgin Orbit, and a very vibrant community of students, uh, groups like uh, USC, uh, RPL, Rocket Propulsion Laboratory, or LPL, and uh, many new companies like Launcher Space in Hawthorne, Relativity Space in Long Beach, More 3D, um, Ampere for electric hybrid aircraft, Lockheed Martin, Honeywell, Raytheon, Aerojet Rocketdyne, that's just amazing area with great heritage. So we routinely do have, uh, have been doing uh, routinely doing events so people can network. Uh, all our events are networking events. And uh, so uh, up to today, uh, on December 4th, we have NASA chief scientist, former director of NASA Planetary Exploration Division, uh, Dr. Jim Green, speak to, speak to us. And we'll also have newsletter opportunities. So welcome to participate, uh, submit your articles or um, post your progress or activities. Um, so we also post our video podcast on our website. You're welcome to enjoy it. We usually just add the Apple podcast. Uh, so uh, more, much more people can enjoy our, our uh, events. So for uh, today, our speaker, uh, Mr. Paul Zamansky, is an outer space warfare is a noted author and speaker. He has a great series of lecture. We'll um, you know, uh, have him back, uh, talk to us more. 
is a space strategy center, is a space control consultant. He's actually also, also affiliated with other, uh, some organizations, but today's talk is yeah. only related to his personal view. So his, uh, we are not emphasizing this other affiliation. He has 47 years of experience in missile space warfare policy, strategy, simulation, surveillance, uh, resilience, stress assessment, long range strategic planning, and a command and control. In, in addition, he has a comprehensive experience base, having worked with multiple series, Air Force, Army, Navy, Marines, civilian agencies like NASA, DARPA, FEMA, and from the Pentagon Secretary of the Air Force to system development, like uh, system space, space, uh, space and missile center, center, system centers, SMC, now space, space system commands, uh, technology development, like Air Force Research Lab, to operational field tests at China Lake Naval Test Center. This gives him a unique perspective in understanding divergent issues associated with each step of DOD procurement process. Uh, this, these are all very exciting topics. I'm sure you, you are, have been waiting for a long time. So uh, uh, let's welcome uh, Mr. Paul Zamansky. So all yours. All yours, all yours. Okay, uh, let me see about sharing the screen. Oh, I guess you have to stop sharing. Go ahead. Um, can you see my um, screen? Not yet. Not yet, okay. This is always an issue. I am trying to find uh, the Zoom link. Okay, let's try share screen. Okay, can you see my screen now? Yes, yes. Okay, great. Um, well, thank you for the wonderful introduction. Uh, again, my name is Paul Samansky, and um, I, I appreciate you coming out on a Saturday. Uh, to my mind, this is a, a critical subject, uh, at least uh, recently it's gotten uh, uh, quite a lot of press and so forth. And so um, I want to just show you some of my ideas that I've come up with personally, actually. Um, I'm retired now, and uh, at the time I had security clearances, but I haven't for nine years now. They all timed out. So this is all kind of open source uh, interpretation of uh, what's been happening. And you've already seen this about myself. Uh, my consulting business, I call the Space Strategy Center, same acronym as uh, SMC, uh, but essentially I'm trying to put together foundational outer space warfare, the theory of how to fight and win space wars, the doctrine, strategies, and tactics. And I do a lot of um, study of uh, uh, classical military uh, history and, and tactics and things like that. And I believe uh, you can apply that to space, that you're really talking about um, uh, human beings uh, fighting each other's minds, and they transmit uh, intent and will and so forth to each other with uh, military equipment, space equipment, uh, 
and with soldiers, sailors, uh, guardians, and, and so forth. But it's still the same concepts that uh, are applied one way or the other. So I like to look at uh, what well are classically, again, called space grand strategies, operational strategies, and tactics, and uh, ultimately link these to the ground battlefield because there really aren't colonies in space. You know, you got the ISS and all that. But really, what we're doing in space ultimately impacts what's happening uh, on Earth. And so you have to really try to figure out how you link up with what's happening on Earth. I mean, maybe there's a particular battle plan, a sequence of events, a tempo, and so forth. So you've got to think of how to um, implement denial strategies against an adversary space uh, uh, assets based on what his capabilities are, what his strategies are, what his intents are, and how that relates to what's happening on the terrestrial battlefield. So I think it's very important to use the same terminology, you know, that uh, Army and Navy uh, types can understand in space, and even to have uh, integrated uh, battlefield situation displays, and I've done some work on that too, so that you can have an army general come in who knows nothing about space and readily understand, oh yeah, it looks like these satellites that I depend upon are uh, about to be attacked uh, and we've got to you know, do something about it. So I need to make uh, what I call normalization but space battle management has to reflect uh, terrestrial war fighting principles. So you can have it as an integrated whole. So what I wanna do here is uh, give you a general introduction uh, to warfare, some of the principles and so forth. And then I'm gonna speak about a, a specific battle that happened uh, in space uh, over the Ukrainian conflict in 2014. Um, and I love this quote from uh, Churchill, uh, World War II. Uh, he says, you can take the most gallant sailor, the most intrepid airman, uh, or the most audacious soldier, and you put them together uh, in one room, and what do you get? The sum of their fears. Um, one has to still think in terms of human emotions in space, though in some sense, if you're talking about space wars, it seems like an extension of um, drone wars, you know, UAS systems and so forth, where you've got operators thousands of miles away, essentially playing video games uh, on the battlefield. Only in space, you're not talking about, you know, generally anyone dying or anything like that. So there's a certain video game mentality, which I suppose is very different than a soldier in a trench about to die on the battlefield and a different psychology. And it'd be interesting to have, uh, if there is such a thing, military psychologists uh, look over how that may be different uh, in the space environment. So getting back to this, what I mentioned already, all warfare is between uh, human minds. And you, you gotta remember that. And so. A lot of the principles of classical warfare still apply to futuristic space conflicts. And, you know, this uh, quote here from um, an ancient Greek uh, historian is that really the principles of war 
even though you're out there to, to break things and, and kill people, I guess, and, and so forth, um, you're really trying to change minds, ultimately. You know, uh, was it Clausewitz or something? Uh, politics by other means is uh, what he means is that it's just a, a more dramatic way of relating to other countries and potential adversaries to make them change their mind in one sense or another. And then this uh, other quote from Akami uh, that you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And so you might have a lot of peaceniks going around saying, oh, space wars, that's terrible, you know. Uh, but if you, uh, you know, put your head in the sand and ignore it, it's going to bite you sooner or later. So you got to think about it. You've got to plan for it. You got to defend, and you probably have to have an offensive arm. Best uh, uh, defense is an offense, so, and so forth. And one might even think about, well, if um, the way space has become so important to the United States and to potential future adversaries, you might fight a war in space and find out, well, it's not even. Uh, you know, worthwhile fighting the war on the ground if we lost in space. I mean, how does a, a Navy carrier battle group um, communicate back to CONUS um, without satellite communications? I mean, are they still practicing troposcat or COM? Um, how do they have their uh, jets uh, establish waypoints to targets? How do they service the targets uh, without GPS uh, accuracy? Uh, how do you do bomb damage assessment and all of these things uh, without space? So it's conceivable that in the future, you could have a war in space. No one gets hurt, so to speak. You might lose a couple billion dollars with a space gear, but no one dies on the ground. And another way of looking at this, too, is the uh, in order to uh, fight a battle in space, and I'm not talking, you know, people talk a sort of tactical onesies, you know, like, Oh, this uh, RPO, this satellite's coming close to us and poking at us and inspecting and all this. Well, that's kind of a peacetime crisis level form of warfare. That's not really um, major warfare where you've got 50 targets you're servicing and there's uh, a very complex sequencing of events and uh, different strategies and different intents and, and things like that that you've got to uh, figure out. And so um, in order to, there's two ways to attack in space. Uh, the space, you know, I, I say, oh yeah, it's different psychologically, or it's the same psychologically, the terrestrial warfare, but the physics are kind of different. And one is you have an anti-satellite, an ASAT in an orbit, it cannot start maneuvering at any given time in that orbit. There's only specific times that it can start maneuvering to go match the orbital characteristics of a target. In other words, attack it. And um, so there's certain key choke points in space, uh, jumping off points, and there's two ways of attacking. You can either launch all of your ASATs at the same time, but then they will um, hit their targets at different times, or you can launch all your ASATs at different times and hit your targets all at once for surprise uh, effect. Um, so if you've got these key choke points, let's say, that you would base your ASATs in, the, uh, it appears to me if you have good space situational awareness, space domain awareness, 
And if you can see an adversary building up at these choke points with satellites, space systems that appear to be threatening, you might be able to frustrate those attacks either physically by attacking the attackers before they even launch or going to the UN and say, hey, uh, looks like they're setting up for this attack in space. And we know that they would attack in space before they would even attack on the ground to take out our eyes and ears. It looks like they're giving into strategic indicators that they want to attack on the ground and maybe you can prevent it. So in some sense, uh, space war might prevent ground war. And so it's something to think about. It's something to develop these different doctrines and, and diplomatic relationships and, and things and so forth. But, you know, of course, it's obvious, uh, you know, I'm speaking to the choir here, but space is too important to the United States. Uh, the adversaries cannot ignore that. They, you know, really going to do something about it and actually have been doing things about it. And I'll go over that a little bit. Now, uh, there's very many ways. You know, space is a system. It's a satellite. It's ground um, controllers and uh, data reception centers and then the link between them. And so if you want to deny a satellite, what you're really doing is denying a space system. Uh, and you can either go against the satellite, the ground system, or the links. And a satellite is meaningless if um, it, can, it doesn't have ground controllers, um, you know, to control it or downlink the data, you know, the weather data, the GPS data, imagery, whatever. Um, so if you took out the ground sites, you know, with soft teams or iron bombs, maybe you've kind of done the, the job. Or if you've got very good jammer cyber weapons and he's not able to downlink this information when he's overhead to the, the stations, maybe you've done the, that too and you haven't created any debris in space. So there's many ways. I mean, the latest in thing are um, inspection satellites. And you'll see a lot in the news about somebody coming up close and that's because um, it's very easy in space to hide things, to hide satellites too. And I have a whole briefing on that. But um, you can have all kinds of war reserve modes inside the satellites or even extra antennas. Things. No one's going to know unless you get up close and personal and see. And while you're up and close there, well, maybe you can insert some cyber code. Um, maybe you can have a little pea shooter, you know, that shoot at the satellite. Maybe you can paint the solar panels or, you know, you can do all kinds of mischief. That's um, lower levels of conflict that's probably not going to cause a general strategic warfare. Uh, so that, that's the latest in thing, that everyone on the block's got to have their inspector satellite. Trouble that, if you're going against LEO or even MEO, uh, low Earth orbit, uh, medium Earth orbit satellites, uh, you only have five to seven minutes of coverage before it passes uh, from a being overhead. And artificial intelligence isn't enough nowadays for this, you know, uh, inspection satellite, especially if it has manipulator arms and, uh, you know, it's going to start doing something to your satellite. You have to have a human controller in one way or the other, you know, with six degrees of freedom joysticks or, or whatever. I mean, I've seen these systems. Um, so you need coverage that goes more than five or seven minutes. So you need some sort of relay satellite. 
to be able to get, provide continuous coverage. Now you can provide continuous coverage at geosynchronous, you know, if it's over where you've got a ground controller station. But I think in many instances, it's the um, relay satellites that are most vulnerable. And again, another choke point uh, for information flow uh, for these kinds of things. But I, I don't really believe in the um, inspector satellites for uh, general uh, major war in space and they're more intel collection and and looking to see are, is there a secret door on the side uh, are there other antennas what's the size and frequency range of the antennas what are the materials used what's their vulnerability to laser you know all these kinds of things uh, that you can look at hopefully you, you get a copy of this brief and all but you can look at all the various uh, means uh, threats and so forth uh, against space systems, not only the satellite, but everything else that's on the ground too. Okay, history of space warfare. Believe it or not, it goes back to Roman times. Uh, Lucian's uh, true history uh, gave uh, Roman legions attacking the moon, and I guess they had giant spiders or something like that. But it certainly has been in people's imaginations. I mean, even uh, right after Sputnik, a uh, famous artist uh, had uh, space planes attacking satellites and so forth. But in the more real world, there's been a lot of different systems that have been developed uh, over the years. I mean, I have a piece of a computer from Johnston Island uh, that was the uh, direct descent uh, nuclear ASAT in the 1960s. Um, you know, we've had these things. It's come out in the last few years on the uh, uh, Russian Almaz satellite, uh, they had an anti-aircraft gun on there. And uh, to shoot down threatening satellites coming towards, I don't really know how that works. I mean, you'd have to, uh, every uh, action gives a, you know, opposite reaction. So the uh, space station would, uh, you know, go backwards after you shot it. And so you'd have to remaneuver it. And the thing is, is, oh, anti-aircraft uh, cannon. Well, it's not like shooting down a plane and all the pieces fall to the ground. Um, you sh shoot up something coming at you while well, the pieces are still coming at you, more or less. So I don't know how that would all work. I, I think there's more subtle and clever ways to take care of threats. But I was on the uh, F-15 uh, anti-satellite uh, program, the ALALSAT, uh, Air Launched ASAT uh, with the F-15. Uh, I worked in the Pentagon at the time. Uh, the uh, program element monitor said, uh, as far as he was concerned, uh, the program was just a negotiating chip with the uh, Russians over their kinetic anti-satellite system, which I don't know if it still exists. I don't know if this thing still exists. You'd think, well, it worked, it tested. Um, why would you put it away? You know, maybe it's sitting somewhere. I know someone told me, um, on top of a safe here at Air Force Research Labs in Kirtland was one of the miniature homing seekers. So for what that's worth, uh, just sitting there. And then there's been all kinds of uh, anti-satellite concepts since the 80s. Here's some actual Russian concepts of uh, lasers and, and space fighters. I mean, maybe uh, the, uh, what's the, the, the miniature uh, vehicle that's up there, it goes up for more in a year, maybe that's kind of a space fighter, you never know. And then I want to emphasize that there's many ways to skin the cat. Uh, this is uh, the heavy earth terminals that we took out 
uh, in Iraq during a desert storm to deny the Iraqis the ability maybe to see the left hook uh, with imagery satellites. I mean, I knew the uh, Navy captain who was in charge of Schwarzkopf's uh, intel staff. And uh, he said that Schwarzkopf purposely put the French forces on the leftmost of the left uh, hook so that they'd be the most vulnerable so that it would inspire them to turn off spot their imagery satellite, commercial imagery satellite system. So the Iraqis wouldn't be able to image all this uh, forces moving into the desert. So I'm not sure how true that is, but that's what he claimed. Okay, there's been various space wars, incidents, whatever kind of level you wanna talk about it. I mean, uh, I remember uh, in the 1980s going to the, Laurel, Maryland uh, FCC um, site, which uh, would look at satellite interference. And uh, they told me that in the 1960s, um, the ComSat, that was the name of the satellite, communication satellite, US satellite, was jammed for several days. And um, they would move the uh, satellite, roll the satellite, and the most intense signal was coming from uh, off the East Coast. So they figured it was a Russian trawler jamming it for some reason. And you know, the one thing about space is you're not really sure who's who and what the intent is, uh, though you can show resolve and intent without killing people and things like that. But, you know, I doubt, uh, an ASAT is going to have a big red star painted on the side of it. You're not really sure why some things stopped working. Um, another thing, again, when I was uh, in my 20s, just starting out, uh, I was working with a NASA guy, and he claimed CSAT, the NASA satellite, to measure wave height. When they first turned it on, they said, oh, my gosh, we can see um, nuclear submarines uh, cruising at depth that it gave a slight wiggle to the ocean going for miles and that they faked its death. I mean, this is the guy at NASA telling me this. And then years later, uh, working uh, uh, with the Satellite Assessment Center and so forth, it was their favorite target to do imaging, compensated uh, uh, optics and things like that. And that satellite's all bent out of shape. <laughs> it, just, it looked like um, it had been attacked in one way or the other. So I, that's all I know. Uh, the other, these are all kind of suspicious things. I don't have proof one way or the other. Uh, the other thing in the mid uh, 1980s, uh, neither Russia or the US could seem to launch the satellite. Every time a satellite, uh, a missile was sent up, a launch vehicle, um, it would crash into the ocean. And as it had going on for six, eight months, uh, no satellites would get up there. And I, it just seems suspicious to me at the time that they were being attacked tit for tat or something like that. And again, I, I don't have the actual proof of that, but statistically that seemed what was going on. There's another incident that I can't talk about under this environment. This one I will talk about uh, using open sources uh, during the um, Ukrainian crisis. And then, uh, you know, I've been in this business 47 years. Usually there's um, two or three job announcements a year for my kind of people over most of those 47 years. But in the last uh, five years, there's been an explosion of job announcements, hundreds and not thousands. And I can sense a panic 
in the US government over space warfare. And if you just look at uh, the establishment of the Space Force, here's the Republicans and Democrats in Congress not able to agree on anything, but suddenly magically, oh yeah, we really agree, we need a Space Force. You know, something very dramatic happened to inspire the fact that, yeah, we really got to get serious now. And other countries around the world know what, knew what happened. Um, and uh, you can see the establishment of their uh, uh, space commands and, and so forth, that there was a big thing that happened. And again, that's the beauty of space that attacks can happen, big things can happen, and you don't have to rile up the population to, you know, uh, and have them force you to do things like, you know, the Falklands Island, did uh, Britain really care about it? Or was it, uh, you know, being taken over was too much for the, uh, their uh, citizens and they forced something uh, to happen on that. And I, I don't know how many of you guys work uh, the space warfare thing, but subtly is everything uh, in space or in space uh, denial and so forth. Because uh, many times, uh, for example, um, many countries use different channels on Intelsat, you know, international consortium. And if you wanna deny a country, you know, during Desert Storm, Iraq or whatever, one channel, well, you're not gonna send a missile against that satellite and blow it up and everyone's gonna be mad at you. So you need a kind of, um, subtlety to what you're doing and you need various means of attacking so there's things like you want temporary effects maybe partial effects and so we're talking about different ways of doing things that get up to more and more severe uh, kinds of attack but also important is non-attribution like oh the satellite just stopped working uh i didn't do it i wasn't there and, you know, oh, well, it was flying over Antarctica at the time. No one was looking at it. Um, it's very hard to prove anything happened in space. And that's the point of the plausible deniability. Uh, this whole point of it, really what's happening there is tens of thousands of kilometers away. It's very difficult to directly image a satellite or constantly image a satellite to see if somebody's coming at you. Uh, and, you know, who's that somebody? Let's say, oh, we're at war with China over Taiwan or something like that. And one of our satellites stopped working. And you sit there and you scratch your head and it's like, uh, well, maybe it was solar flares, um, maybe meteorite hit it. Um, maybe it's just normal uh, you know, failures of electronics. Happens on my radios and stuff like that. Um, you're not really sure. And do you wanna start a space war when you're not really sure? And you could sit there and say, well, we're had to be a war in the Western Pacific. It's probably the Chinese, but maybe it's the Russians stirring the pot. And so I think there's a certain amount of um, self-denial that will go on. And my uh, calculations and simulations have shown real space wars, not onesies and twosies, but taking out multiple targets and all. That'll be over with in 24 to 48 hours before we even figured out what happened to us. Or even what was the intent of the adversary? Was it uh, you know, a decapitation attack? They're taking out comms, ISR? Uh, are they just showing resolve? Uh, is it prelude to something worse happening on the ground? How do you figure that out and figure it out in time and then do something about it? 
tough problem. So unique characteristics of space systems. It's global. Everything you do there is a, a global war in one sense or another. I mean, you might deny a satellite over the battlefield. Well, maybe use a laser to blind it or something. But you could just as easily have attacked it a thousand miles away, a Navy ship sending up a missile over the South Atlantic or something like that. You know, it's, it's just a whole global thing you got to think about. Plus, um, oh, I, I've got a cyber technique uh, to uh, be able to deny the information coming down to the ground station to the adversary in country. But he can just as easily download it to another country, Thailand or something like that, and have it come in via submarine cable. Are you going to deny a Thai ground station? You have special forces go in? No, you're not going to do any of that. Uh, you're not going to probably do a cyber attack either. So it's, it's kind of a whole global thing. And you can't just sit there and, and think tactical all the time. You got to think the, the bigger picture. And it's highly political. People, unfortunately, kind of used to war and death on the ground. Uh, I think the first fully space war that the public learns about is going to have a lot of implications. And, you know, you, we might lose allies over it just politically, like, oh, we really don't like war in space, you know. Uh, kinds of things. You'd be a lot of demonstrations and, and, and all that, and maybe even politicians voted out of office. You don't know. And so it's probably best to keep it under wraps, you know, as best that you can. And that's why I'm mentioning it's, you know, space and space war satellites are largely hidden from public view and really hidden from other people's views, other countries, maybe um, other parts of the military. Space Force might do something in space and they're not going to tell the Navy about it, you know, purposely. Uh, you might really not know what's happening, you know, one way or the other. And then there's many peacetime consequences, you know, treaties that might uh, be signed. You know, uh, if we lose a war in space, maybe we'd lose some of our allies that go over to the other side saying, well, we thought the U.S. was so strong. I guess they weren't, you know. Um, and then the other thing is, is um, you know, we talk about NATO helping us in space and, and you know, it's a new battleground and so forth. Well, if we're again at this conflict in the Western Pacific, it takes a heck of a long time to move satellites. And if you've got satellites that are kind of concentrated over Europe, your allies aren't going to help you. You got to fight with what you got in hand at the time. Really, that's kind of one of the principles. Uh, and then this other thing, uh, going back to uh, the physics, I define two space objects to be close to each other in that if it takes a minimal amount of fuel and time to match orbits. So uh, according to that definition, you can have a satellite on the opposite side of the Earth from you, and um, it still be close if it's uh, the same altitude and inclination. It just takes a little bit of phasing to come at you. So you have to think different uh, of what's considered close. You have to have situation maps that are different. You know, throw out those maps where you have 10,000 space objects spinning around and it's 3D map and you got a data glove and all that. You got to kind of simplify it to the point where maybe it's like an army situation map and you can see how certain forces are going closer. You could see, gosh, I see 20 different 
unknown space objects, half of them I thought were junk, suddenly maneuvering towards key uh, assets. Uh, I've got 12 hours to do something about it. You know, the, that kind of thing. And then I'll go over the rest of these kind of quickly. I'll probably start running out of time soon enough. I have a tendency to uh, spend two hours going over the first 10 slides, but at any rate, uh, there's more ways, you know, there's many non-debris causing ways to attack space systems. And at lower levels of conflict, there's certainly diplomatic, economic, uh, cyber is the end thing. Everyone's into the cyber uh, things that you can do all kinds of, let's say, more subtle things. Though some of these things might cause debris if it causes the satellite to go crazy, I guess. You've got the directed energy that can blind or maybe someday uh, be able to um, slice satellites in half, um, high-powered lasers and so forth. Uh, and then there's the physical tax. If you isolate the satellite from the ground, it's worthless. And so if it has no way of communicating to the ground, you've taken out their centers that are receiving the information or processing it, or maybe even uh, denying the, the ground communication to those. Um, maybe you've done the job, at least for a while. And then there's the more classic uh, kinetic kill vehicles going against uh, satellite systems. Uh, these inspector satellites or maintenance satellites with, you know, manipulator arms. You grab a satellite, pull it out, uh, disassemble it, cut wires. You know, to me, it's like um, taking a satellite, throwing it in a wheelbarrow, then wheeling it into my garage, and then I get to go at it. Uh, you know, I'll drill a hole here, cut this wire, saw this, bend that. You know, if you got this manipulator satellite, and if you got human control on that, you can do a lot of things. It, the trouble is, I, I don't think um, inspector satellites, manipulator satellites, and so forth are that timely. It takes days, weeks to maneuver in the right uh, position. And if the space war is over within 24 hours, these things aren't going to help you. These are more lower level conflicts, as far as I'm concerned. Now, the other thing is, is because of the obscurity of space, um, being able to get away with a lot. And, you know, I estimate there's been about six space wars <laughs> since the 1970s and probably more. Uh, you got away with a lot. And uh, quite frankly, the Ukrainian conflict, you got away with a lot. But it provides additional rungs on a conflict escalation ladder where uh, countries can communicate, you know, a resolve and intent. And I'm really serious now. I just blew up your satellite or whatever. Um, without necessarily resorting to a terrestrial conflict where human lives might uh, be involved. Now, of course, you really have to study this. It's like, well, a war in space could cause a war in the ground or vice versa too. Uh, so we're not really sure of escalation control and I've got a whole briefing on that too. Um, but at least it's, it's an additional forum that's actually worked for a few years. And I, I see space now like, the Cold War in the 1960s and 70s, where you had Russian destroyers cutting off our destroyers, and sometimes they accidentally hit and, and so forth, and U-2s and SR-71s probing air defenses of Russia and, and all this. And I think the same thing's going on in space, that they're kind of messing with each other. And, um, and maybe that's good, you know, it keeps things on, on tap and so forth, if it doesn't get too serious. Um, 
on that. Let some kind of blow off steam, maybe. Uh, now, this is what I mentioned that, uh, you know, there's a linkage between space and ground, maybe. I mean, I'm not a diplomat and all that, but I think that uh, deserves to be uh, analyzed. And then the other thing is, is um, well, it, it's easy to define winning a terrestrial conflict. You've got, uh, oh, well, we recaptured this territory. We destroyed his tanks and war making uh, industries. Um, we captured the capital. Uh, we seized the, the guy in charge and, and changed the political system and all that. Well, who's the guy in charge in space? Who's the capital? Uh, according to the UN, we can't own territory uh, in space. So how do you define winning? And it's conceivable that both sides can claim they won. Well, yeah, that's typical politics. But um, you know, how do you say, okay, uh, these are our objectives before we start the war. Uh, now we've met those objectives. Now we're going to terminate the conflict. So um, I've got a whole other briefing on that, but I've got 50 or 60 principles that might be sufficient for uh, war termination uh, criteria. Oh, and uh, you can just click on these things here and get to some of those briefings. And then I've sort of mentioned this again, and maybe this is uh, to a lot of people on the ground. Um, this is a terrible thing to say, but I think fighting wars in space is better than fighting them on the ground. Fewer casualties, fewer ground structures destroyed. Uh, and there's all kinds of subtle things that you, you don't have to create debris. Um, I have another briefing on that, of all the subtle ways that you can mess with satellite systems, uh, take out their capability without creating uh, you know, debris. Now, the trouble is, is uh, because space is so obscure, so far, you can't really see what's happening. Do you really know you're under attack? Uh, you know, people talk about keep out zones and all. Well, if you look at the orbital dynamics, satellites come close or space junk or whatever comes close to each other all the time with natural orbital motions. Um, you can't be shooting things down just because they came close if it's peacetime, you know. And so does, and then if you believe space is very important to ultimately a terrestrial uh, conflict, um, do you have a use it or lose it mentality that can you really detect an attack being built up in space and have enough confidence to attack them? Uh, do you have to wait until you absorb the attack? But if it's over within 24 hours, you just lost. Um, you know, is this concept of a hair trigger, almost like nuclear war of decades past, that whoever shoots first wins? I don't know, uh, kind of thing. So that's a um, something, again, that should be analyzed. I mean, I think we should establish a, a space force kind of think tank, uh, like RAND is for the Army, or, uh, or no, I'm sorry, uh, is Project Arial for the Army and, and RAND for the uh, Air Force. The Space Force needs its own think tank uh, to, to kind of discuss these issues. And here are some of the possible war uh, termination criteria. I've got a whole bunch of them. Uh, but let me move on. Um, title of the speech actually was uh, the war in space over the Ukrainian uh, conflict. And here's the uh, timeline of what was happening. 
Uh, I estimate uh, it was 20th February 2014. The war started in earnest. That's the first day that a lot of people got killed. It was a little bit sniping beforehand. And then uh, if you have this briefing, if you uh, click on these links, it'll show you the news articles. So uh, in March, uh, the Ukrainians jam uh, and they claim attempted to decay a Russian communication satellite. And I don't know which one they went against, but you're not going to decay it if it's in geosynchronous. But nevertheless, they try to spin it out or something like that. So that was, you know, a space attack on the blue side. Uh, and then on the 2nd of April, the entire Russian GLONASS, their GPS system, had a system-wide failure. All 24 satellites stopped working for 13 hours. I'll show you that analysis. And then I guess the Russians didn't exactly get the message because that was a message. I mean, uh, I doubt the rebels in eastern Ukraine are using GLONASS navigation that much. I mean, they all know where all the roads are and everything's at and all that. Uh, it was a messaging. And they didn't get the message. So two weeks later, another eight satellites failed, you know, magically. Um, and there's a few other things uh, like this Russian ballistic missile early warning system was lost. Now, I'll tell you one thing. Um, national technical means you know, early warning satellites you should not touch with because it appears to me that's an indicator precursor to nuclear war. That's the first thing you want to do before you start initi uh, initiating nuclear war is to take out his eyes and ears in space so he can't tell what missiles are coming at him. Um, so if you, you shouldn't even have an inspector satellite, you shouldn't even get near any of those things because the other side doesn't know what your intent is. And they might say, hey, it looks like they're setting up for a nuclear attack, you know, so just, you know, don't mess with us. Um, and then uh, on the 30th April, the Russians kind of uh, hit back. And this is what I'm saying. This is kind of a diplomatic thing. Uh, at the time, uh, Russia was uh, launching our astronauts to the International Space Station. Shuttle had been retired. And the, the head of the Roscosmos said, uh, well, you guys, you can start using a trampoline now to get to space, you know, wise guy threat. Uh, and this is all space warfare. You know, there's all this subtle diplomatic, economic, even cyber warfare in sense is a, a, cyber, uh, a subtle uh, means of space warfare. It's the whole spectrum. And that's what Space Force has to understand. You're not just some lieutenant there at a screen, and oh, I just took out this satellite. Well, why did you take it out? Uh, you should be taking out a capability, not necessarily a satellite. What are the implications afterwards? You create space junk. What are the political implications? You know, is the general populace going to find out? Or there's going to be protests? I don't know. You know, you got to think that all through. Okay, continuing. Uh, this is my favorite. Sixteenth uh, May. A Russian launch vehicle uh, carrying a communication satellite that would cover the eastern uh, Ukraine crashed on a Chinese village during launch while Putin was conducting a diplomatic visit to China uh, pushing uh, Russian space capabilities. Now, that's circumstantial, but that sure sounds like a signal to me in one form or another. Uh, and then there's a bunch of other failed communication satellites. All of these are statistically more than normal at the time. And I mean, I can't prove, you know, that there was an attack uh, one way or the other. There's a, a other interesting thing. Uh, while the US was attacking the GLONASS system, and I'll mathematically prove they were, 
uh, the European Galileo, their GPS system, suddenly had a launch failure. Oh, launching on Russian Soyuz rockets out of uh, South America, Alcantara, at any rate. Um, and that sounds like messaging to the Europeans too. But again, I, I'm not sure one way or the other. And then this is the end of the conflict. And I'll tell you how it works uh, in a second. There is a Russian cyber attack on the American banking system, 28th of August. Look it up. It was in the papers. Five major banks in New York City had tens of millions of bank accounts, stock accounts and all downloaded. Um, and the banks at the time says, boy, it looks like it's Russian servers coming from. And then a few days later, you never hear anything more about it. I mean, a lot of that happens. You got to read the tea leaves in the, in the press. But the strange thing is, is a week later, suddenly everyone was at the uh, uh, negotiating table in the Ukraine. Uh, suddenly, okay, well, now we're all going to do a truce. And I'll, I'll describe what that all means in a second. So uh, first of all, uh, people in Britain published uh, that during the time they, they had uh, GLONASS receivers. They had a receiver uh, here in the south of England. That's where they physically were at. But the GLONASS receivers were um, showing these positions, kind of random positions, I don't know, tens of kilometers away. Uh, so there was error induced by cyber weapons. Um, and then the Russians published um, the date and time when their various satellites here started blinking out. And so I said, well, you know, I, I'm a uh, rocket scientist. I got my orbital dynamics software. I'm gonna try to figure out where were these satellites, these GLONASS Russian satellites, where were they located when they started blinking out, the exact times and so forth. So, uh, you know, every two weeks I download the NORAD, uh, well, it's not called NORAD anymore, the uh, uh, Space Force catalog, satellite catalog, you know, um, you can, anyone can sign up and, and do that. And so I got the uh, orbital elements and propagated them and found out that every time a Russian GLONASS satellite was over Alice Springs, Australia, it would blink out, you know, strangely. And this is showing you the, the orbits, Alice Springs, and the white lines are showing you um, when there was coverage over that particular region of Earth. And this is a flat map view. This is showing you uh, the orbits of, uh, let's say, this Cosmos 2434, the GLONASS-13, when it would cover uh, the eastern Ukraine and how it comes over. And then suddenly it's over Alice Springs and how it, where its access points are. And this is the actual time of when uh, various satellites would be over uh, Alice Springs, you know, the actual physics of it. And this is looking up from Alice Springs um, and when what you would see in terms of the orbit of the uh, satellite uh, as it's coming over. And Alice Springs, um, well, since the 1960s, it's been noted uh, as a uh, NSA listening post. Uh, Nothing classified about that. The Australians have at least two movies on that I've seen uh, on that. And then uh, the, well, the Air Force, now the Space Force will gladly tell you about their counter communication system, uh, which there were some things in the news a few weeks ago of um, 
L3 Harris just got a new contract for that. And they say, yeah, the electronic warfare system we have here uh, based in New Mexico, the southern part of the state. And um, I, I'm just theorizing here that maybe there was an Alice Springs or Pine Gap, actually, um, at that time. I don't know. And this is the view of uh, Pine Gap uh, itself in Alice Springs, the NSA listening site. Okay, conclusions. The failures of seven Russian satellites over four months was very unusual. I can't specifically prove that they are under attack, but that's suspicious. The GLOWIS attacks, well, it was not a natural phenomena. It began exactly at 6.30 in the morning, Pine Gap time. And, you know, I've been to these places. I, they, these guys come in at 6 a.m., get their coffee. At 6.15, they start exercising the attack. And at 6.30, they start it. They push the red button or whatever. Um, and the other funny thing, too, is the, the attack was sequenced. Uh, if there were several GLONASS satellites in view at the same time, they would be ticked off GLONASS 1, 2, 3, 4 in numerical order. I mean, this is not a natural phenomena. It's too ordered and precise to have been that. And to me, that kind of proves that they came under attack, besides a few other factors. Uh, wait a minute, and I finished here. Uh, the other ones are circumstantial. The Galileo attacks, maybe there's a warning to the Europeans. Now, this is why you have to think big in space, not tactically, not even strategically. It's gotta be grand strategy and all. And it just it appears to me that, oh, we're doing great in space. We've got all these great cyber weapons and who knows what else. We're plinging at Russian satellites. The Russians get PO'd and they bring the war to the ground and they attack the American banking system and don't do anything about it. Seize, I think it was like 60 million bank accounts and sit there and do nothing about it. Now, Suddenly, the Obama administration at the time stopped criticizing Russia over the Ukrainian thing. You could see, oh, suddenly there's no more reports in the news and all that. And suddenly a peace treaty was signed, you know, within a week after the attack on the American banking system. So I am summarizing that we won in space, the space war, what we lost on the ground, and ultimately we lost the space war that it's more than just space. You've got to understand the whole picture, the diplomatic, economic, you know, everything uh, on this. And, you know, there's so many examples in military history where a, a supposedly lesser foe beat a bigger foe, you know, marginal line, very expensive, you know, we're fighting the last war. Um, and the same could happen in space if you don't think it through the bigger picture that, oh, we look at these bright, shiny space systems we've got to defend in space, you know, no one's going to get to us. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, it's really uh, human minds and whoever's the most decisive, who understands space war the best, uh, who understands the sequencing of attacks and, and the why and and the vulnerabilities of your opponent, the fact that we probably will self-deter 
because we're not sure what's happening. We can't prove they did it to us. Uh, I have a whole book on satellite failures. And it's amazing how um, the satellite engineers believe in perfection. And they say, oh, we didn't know the sensor would point towards the bright moon and then start spinning out. Oh, we didn't know this, you know? And it takes them months to kind of figure out, well, why did that satellite fail? I don't really know, but we think it's this. Now, if you've got a space war going on and things failing left and right, um, that's not gonna cut it. You know, your SDA, space domain awareness and all that, you really gotta know quickly. And you've got to have decisive leadership. And the trouble is that involves the politicians ultimately. I don't know if they're going to allocate that ability to start a space war to lower level uh, uh, military types. So something to think about. Okay, lessons learned. It was too obvious. Why should somebody like me on the street be able to detect it? You, you didn't have to have these attacks all coming from Australia. Um, these cyber weapons aren't that big, not as big as you saw in that, you know, the CSS thing, that's jammer quality. Um, they could be in embassies around the world. It could be on Navy ships floating around the world and no one could figure it out that it was intentional attack. All these Russian Glynis things just start blinking out. Who knows, you know? However, you can't be too subtle. Because the whole point of the attack is not to deny the Russians the ability to use the GLONASS, it's to send a message. So you got to make sure the message is really received and they attacked a second time. Maybe the message wasn't received big enough or the Russians didn't care. And then I've already said this, that we really have to understand the bigger picture. And this concept of, uh, you know, what you're doing in space might have terrestrial co uh, consequences, but this concept of combined arms that, well, you do space attacks and you do, uh, uh, you know, satellite attacks, or maybe you, you have this cyber weapon or jammer that isolates the satellite from ground controllers so we can't reconfigure it to defend itself. And you, you know, you jam it for several hours uh, and uh, you're waiting for a more effective ASAT to come into position and do the job right, you know, or combining special forces messing with ground terminals uh, in adversary locations, maybe again with cyber or HPM means, things like that. At the same time that you've got an ASAT system coming up close and it's waiting from the signal from the soft team that, yeah, we did it, or no, we didn't do it. Now the ASAT's gonna go in because that's more politically unacceptable. So there's you know, a lot of ways you have to combine all that. And the Space Force needs to you know, have all these different people. They need to have the State Department part of them. I've been saying that for 25 years now, but they always cut that down, you know, because that ultimately some president is going to say, oh, you just spent a billion dollars in this fancy new space weapon system. I really don't want to use it. You know, it's not diplomatically responsible. And if you had the uh, diplomatic staff early on in its uh, weapon development say, hey, if you change this slightly, it'll be slightly more acceptable when you really want to use it. Okay. Uh, okay, that's it. Uh, there's a whole bunch of, uh, if you get this briefing, you can click on my other briefings. Uh, I probably have 50 or 60 different briefings. That's just some of it. I do have a space warfare discussion group on LinkedIn, over 18,000 members. 
uh, over 1,700 uh, general officers and admirals and uh, uh, 57 astronauts, a couple hundred people from the White House. Now it's probably the most senior uh, space warfare discussion group and you, you could join that if you're interested in it. And if you've got uh, any questions now, um, I'm open. Yeah, thank you. This is really wonderful, wonderful talk, wonderful lecture. So, um, yeah, if you have any question in the audience, please click raise hand or tap in the Q and A box. But while we are waiting for people to to raise hand, I think uh, the first question is: you mentioned about in a few slides, you mentioned about the physics. You said some physics could be interesting. Uh, so could you kind of elaborate a little bit? What is the well, this concept of closeness? I already, I already said that uh, it's not necessarily. Oh, he's twenty feet from me. It's that too, but they could be very close uh, in terms of orbitology. Um, there's other things like uh, you've got uh, Lagrangian points between the earth and the moon um, that is on top of the gravity well. And if you put an ASAT there, uh, first of all, you'd be so far away from earth sensors, they're not gonna know you're there really, um, except they're putting together all these XGO sensor concepts now and all. But um, all you have to do is tip the um, into the gravity well, a little bit of a push, and it can come screaming down to uh, geo, and no one's going to see that coming at you, uh, you know, and do some harm. You know, maybe that's more uh, debris causing, or maybe as you you fly by, you you do something to it. Uh, so th that's something to understand. And then I hear there's all kinds of crazy orbits when you're talking about near the moon and stuff like that. And, and then even uh, during the 1960s, I think it was maybe the Apollo astronauts, um, they would, uh, you know, doing our, our rendezvous and they would say, oh, well, okay, there's our target. Uh, let me step on the gas and, and, you know, get closer to it. No, I don't work that way. Uh, you, you know, put more energy into your orbit, you go to a higher orbit. Uh, you don't get closer to the object. So some of those things are non-intuitive, and I bet you there's a whole bunch of others. I mean, there's a lot of crazy orbits. I think that's, again, part of this think tank thing that you should start looking at crazy orbits, you know. Uh, you can have, um, I've heard things like a, uh, something goes out to the moon and flies back uh, to the poles and then uh, has braking and it's a, a sort of a geosynchronous uh, orbit over the poles for a few months. And then the other crazy thing is um, if you've got uh, electric thrusting. And there was a European uh, satellite a few years ago that had electric thruster going for two and a half years. Um, this escaped me the name now. If you had uh, electric thrusters on critical satellite systems, and just before the war started, you started thrusting. Suddenly, you're not talking about Keplerian uh, algorithms for your orbitals uh, calculations. You're going to screw up all the orbital calculations. And suddenly, all these satellites will be missing. 
and you won't know where they're coming from. And I, I've seen this certain arrogance coming from at least the old space command that, uh, oh, we know where all subjects are. We know where they were launched and this and that. And I think, no, you know, if somebody wants to be clever, uh, they can be clever. And then you look at the satellite catalog and the analyst objects, those are objects that they don't know what they are. They're fully one third of the satellite catalog, fully one third of the catalog, they don't know what the heck they are. <laughs> so it's very easy to hide a satellite, uh, uh, a mean intent satellite. Um, go look uh, at the patent office, 1970s patent for a low observable satellite, you know, like a barbell. Um, there's all kinds of things that you can do to really hide satellites. Next question. Uh, Victor, go ahead, Mr. Cook. Yeah, so that's related to what you were talking about. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay, so so what generally, uh, I, I put LEO or MEO, but where, where what's the optimal uh, orbit that they usually would position space assets, you know, military type assets out? What, what are they, what's the optimal operating orbit? Well, you got low Earth orbit for the imagery. You want to get as close as possible. Um, you have sun synchronous, which is low Earth orbit for the imagery, uh, because you want to um, do shadow control. You want to be over the same place on Earth around 10:30 in the morning. To you want a little bit of shadows to show contrast. That's where the weather satellites uh, like to be. Uh, you've got um, the uh, medium Earth orbit. Here. Where you've got, uh, am I getting an echo here? No. The, uh, the GPS out, it's medium Earth orbit. And then classically, you've got the um, big heavy communication satellites, the geosynchronous. Of course, that's being blown out of the water with all these, what is it, 500, 600 kilometers, 10,000, 20,000 satellites, you know. Uh, SpaceX and all are putting up. So those are generally the ones uh, you're interested in, but there's a very interesting new interest in the moon, probably because China is, I think China's gonna go over there and uh, abrogate the outer space treaty and say they own the moon myself. But um, there is just astounding interests like Air Force Research Lab has all these new programs for space surveillance and lunar orbits called XGO and all that. So I think there's something happening up there. And in the next 10, 20 years, that's the, the new area to worry about. So would they have to declare like airspace, space space to operate in those areas? I mean, you know, some areas in the atmosphere, airspace, uh, clear make military airspace, but they have to uh, declare some uh, military space. Space, you know, that's an interesting comment. I never heard of it. Uh, as far as I know, you can go anywhere you want, uh, you know, uh, in space according to uh, custom and UN treaties. No one can stop you. Uh, I don't think you can say this is our area here. Uh, anyone comes in this area, we're going to shoot you down or, or something like that. No, the interference would be caused if someone, say, put up a commercial satellite up against next to a military satellite. Is there a potential cause for conflict there? Uh, having two objects, two, two pieces of equipment in the same orbit close together. I mean, you know, well, there are certain rules of the road, especially um, at geosynchronous, 
um, and people, um, I'd say, declare ownership of orbital slots, but they have to uh, register it with this is the International Telecommunications Union or something like that. Right. That say, oh, uh, in five years, I'm going to put a satellite in that orbital slot because they can't get too close to each other or they'll start interfering with each other and all. So in a sense, that's accepted ownership, I guess, over the lifetime of the satellite or, or, or whatever. Okay. Yeah, last question I want to know. So if they're in geosynchronous orbit, you know, uh, they have different inclinations in geosynchronous orbit. Do, are they using different uh, inclinations in geosynchronous orbit? Uh, yeah. Retro and pro. to go live. Is that all a combination? To be on that. I'm sorry, there's other people talking. And uh, can you uh, rephrase that again? I didn't get the whole uh, question. Okay, yeah, I'm getting the same feedback somehow. Yeah, I want to know. So, if, say in orbit, they have different inclinations they use. Um, are they also prograde and retrograde in combination? They use the combination of retrograde, prograde type orbits and different inclinations. And well, certainly, um, like Israel uses retrograde because they don't want to launch a missile east with all their enemies. Okay. Uh, I don't know if too many other people use uh, retrograde. And certainly, uh, there's uh, geosynchronous inclined. Maybe uh, I think some of them are 10 degrees and somehow they get a little bit of a better coverage and it's kind of a, a circle eight Lissajou pattern on the ground uh, on that. Um, but there's certainly things you can play with. Uh, Russia, I don't know if they're that big on the geosynchronous because they're such a northern country. They do highly inclined Molnaya kind of orbits they're called. They go way up in space and then come down slowly, you know, and they have multiple satellites and all that. Though that ends up being much more difficult for us to track if they're highly eccentric, meaning it's a squished uh, circle, uh, or highly inclined makes them uh, more difficult to track. Hello, perfect. Okay. All right. Th thanks. Sure. No questions? Or you just can't talk. No, Rich. Rich is uh, coming. Mr. Lehman, go ahead. Please unmute yourself. Rich, go ahead. Uh, Rich, you can click unmute and then you can. There he is. There. I think I think I hit the right button there. Is it working? Yes, it is. I know it's hard to figure it out. I have trouble all the time. <laughs> well, Paul, that was really an excellent presentation. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm wondering if in some of your analyses, for example, the uh, Crimean War that you uh, use, uh, the Russian winning the space war was a terrestrial event. And I'm, I'm wondering if having a concentration in space command might be one level below what we should start thinking. Uh, since space seems to be mostly info, uh, maybe some of the uh, strategies ought to look at the whole cyber and the whole information kind of warfare. I'm, I'm sure you've probably thought about that. And I just kind of wondered what your views are. 
Well, uh, getting back to, you know, defining whether you won or not, the whole point of the space attacks were to influence the Russians to stop doing what they're doing in Ukraine. And that didn't work out. And we maybe in the back of our mind said, well, if they don't get serious in Ukraine over these GLONASS attacks, we're going to, you know, ratchet it up to more and more severe things. And the Russians said, oh, yeah, we had enough of this. Uh, we're going to do what we're good at, I'm told. They're very good at the cyber. Uh, and we're going to attack you another way because we want to make you stop. So the whole purpose of the space attacks um, was to change Russia's mind, and that didn't work. And so you technically could say, oh, yeah, technically that worked. But the whole point of war is not a pinball game and saying, I got this ball in the right hole or whatever, you know. It's uh, inf to influence other nations, ultimately, in one way or the other, to force them to your will or whatever. And in this case, it did not work. So I define that as a loss at the the level that matters, the political diplomatic level of relationships of countries. And that's the philosophy that, you know, here we got this space force starting out and we got to mold these, you know, young minds are so interested in joining to think the right way and not think in terms of onesies and twosies, think of mass battles, think of integration with not only other U.S. forces, Army and Navy and what's happening on the battlefield, but integration with the political and integration with the international, especially with this being such a new area of conflict. Uh, and so much of it is culturally related because we're, we're, again, dealing with human minds. It's adversary commanders uh, fighting each other's minds. There's a cultural component you know, that we might say, ah, we're, we've got this great space weapon and we're going to attack this, you know, country X satellite and boy, are they going to hurt, you know? And so we do it and we attack it and the satellite stops working and the adversary says, uh, huh, why'd they attack that satellite? We weren't really using it. We don't care. I'm an old fogey here who doesn't really believe in space anyway. I, I'm doing the old fashioned kind of war, you know? Have you taken all that into account? And so you should have international partners who would have different perspectives on the different cultures. You know, part of this ground uh, swell of understanding of the purpose, the doctrine, the functioning of the Space Force, how do we involve our allies, if at all? I mean, yeah, we're sort of involving them, but who knows in the reality? And I'm sorry, did I answer the question? Well, yeah, sort of. Uh, I, I guess what I was uh, poking at is, is there uh, an organizational link between cyber command and space command as far as space command strategy vis-a-vis -vis cyber and vice versa? In other words, would the space command have, uh, have conceived of the bank attack? Right, or being able to do something about it. And then how do you conceive that when there's 10 million other different kinds of attacks that can happen? Yeah, know? exactly. Oh, we're yeah. going to go against the water or electricity or whatever, you know. Yep. 
so the, I don't have uh, links into Space Force or Cyber Command or anything. I'm retired now. I've been retired nine years. So I, I'm kind of an academic level. So I'm not sure what they're doing. I do know, though, um, Air Force, Cyber Forces participate in space warfare exercises. So they're at least testing things and understanding that. Now, at a, a larger general to general officer level, uh, that I don't know. Uh, doctrine level, they must have their own doctrine things. I mean, I, I'm not sure who's running doctrine right now at Space Force. I think they're just still all getting that together. Um, no one's last 30 years that I've dealt with Space Command and Air Force and all this stuff, no one was interested in space doctrine that I could tell, and I still can't tell if they're interested or not. So maybe it's hidden away somewhere. But I do know that cyber is the in thing for them. They think they can get away with a lot with cyber. And I guess in a sense you can. You're not breaking stuff. You have the plausible deniability. Oh, I didn't really do it. You know, it's sort of like, um, is it Stuxnet or something uh, going against the Iranian nuclear uh, uh centrifuges and all and you can say oh no we didn't do it. we don't know what it is and you know and so you can do these subtly you know like we're constantly at war with all these subtle things um but to my mind and maybe i'm just old-fashioned you have to excuse me i'm 70 years old um i think of a thought experiment when it comes to cyber and that is here is this soldier in the trenches and these enemy uh uh tanks are uh, starting to maneuver to attack him. And this egghead shows up in the trench and he show, shows the soldier this black box with a big red button. And he says, I assure you, I've been working on this for years and we spent millions of dollars on this. I assure you, if you push that button, that tank is gonna stop. There's gonna be a cyber attack you know, on the tank systems and it'll stop. Unfortunately, you can either carry this black box with the red button or you can carry a bazooka. Now, which do you want to carry? And I, again, I'm old fashioned. I think it's more emotionally satisfying to see a smoking hole in the ground <laughs> versus, oh yeah, I'm going to trust this egghead that if I push this button, that tank's going to stop. And then 30 seconds later, it's going to reboot and come squish me, you know? And it's the same with space. It's even worse in space. Oh, we attacked that satellite. Uh, the cyber code's in there. You know, it's going to deny it. Well, are you really sure? And, and the trouble with the U.S. lately, well, for decades now, is we haven't had real adversaries. We had second and third rate countries who really didn't understand doctrine and, you know, and all like this Navy captain I mentioned earlier on Schwarzkopf's staff. He says the Kuwaitis would come to him and say, well, look at these Marines, you know, out there uh, off Kuwait City. When are they going to attack? And they would tell, oh, no, that's just a feint. We're going to sneak around them, and, and we assure you this is going to work, you know, and they're going to panic and, and all this stuff. And they never got it. The Kuwaiti generals never got it. This just sneaking around the back and, and you know, panic, I don't know, you know, the whole concept of info war and things like that. And so, we're used to, well, think of the Air Force. When is the last time the air war was in doubt? 
that we really weren't sure if we we're going to win in the air. Gee, early days of World War II, not even late World War II. No one alive today in a position of responsibility has ever had a really tough time, you know, fighting an air war, I think. I don't know, maybe I'm being arrogant here. Um, and so has that made us lazy? And, oh, yeah, we understand that. We know where all satellites are at and what their functions are. Oh, they'll never do that. And I've been to 15 different space exercises. And I had one where um, they, of course, were fighting the last war. They were, um, what was it? Uh, oh, the Chinese uh, ASAT test or something like that. And they said, oh, they're going to shoot this ASAT. And I said, why don't we put uh, two ASATs on the same booster and one goes in and um, does the job, but maybe it doesn't. The other one holds back and then, uh, you know, does a, another attack. The first one didn't hit it. And if not, it hides out in the debris field uh, until uh, the orbits over Antarctica. And then it floats off and does something else. And the colonel says, oh, you can't do that. I said, well, why not? You know, I'm just being a little bit clever, not terribly clever. And so all these exercises, they they don't have a clever adversary, <laughs> you know, if you really think about it. And if you've got, you know, several billion Chinese and a whole bunch of them are about to die, uh, people get very clever when you're about to die. And we're going to find something, people, uh, a more capable adversaries, I think, in the next few years. Yeah, well, thanks, Paul. I'm going to... Uh... I'm going to yield uh, for others here, but uh, very, uh, very thought-provoking talk. And I'm going to look forward to uh, pulling up some of the others. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, this, uh, is this presentation going to be uh, available online? I think so. And there will um, also be, uh, I'll be giving more presentations over the next year or so. Okay, oh, great. Uh, in the and the newsletter, uh, there's printed, I think there's one going out that I have the top 40 rules of how to win space wars. Sign, sign, sign me up. Uh, yes, uh, the recording will be posted after the, after the, uh, the event and we'll send the email to everyone, uh, the uh, attendees, and uh, uh, we'll post the information there as well. Um, so while we're waiting for more people to uh, ask question. Uh, I do have one. Uh, the recent Chinese hypersonic uh, test, missile test. Um, could you kind of comment on this? What is the challenge for the uh, space war and the implication for that? And uh, how, how are we going to detect and uh, um, handle it? Well, that's like the old Russian uh, FOB system, fractional orbital environment system, where they get around the UN restriction of uh, weapons of mass destruction in space uh, by saying, oh, it's not in full orbit. Now, I'd like to find out more about it. I haven't seen the, what orbit or what path did it really take. Um, and I think the FOB system from the Russians, uh, the whole point was to get uh, beyond our uh, distant early warning, the dew line of the northern reaches in Alaska and all that, uh, to be able to come from the south. So, but that's all nuclear. As far as um, for space, if that has a space capability, 
uh, you know, to kind of boost up there and then go higher if it has uh, extra fuel in the line. I mean, that, well, that's sort of like the old F-15 ASAT air launched. Um, you can go in any azimuth, you can go anywhere. This thing can be based anywhere around the world. And so are you gonna see it coming? Probably not. I mean, we have the best space surveillance network in the world and we miss things all the time. I don't know how these other countries, you know, China and Russia and all, how do they really understand what's happening in space? And I think that kind of makes it unstable because you're really not sure what's happening uh, one way or the other. And so I sometimes wonder if like the UN should put a network of um, uh, optical sensors. They don't cost that much. There's, you know, companies doing it, put them around, a network around the world uh, to be able to be, uh, sure I call them an honest broker, but to understand what other people are doing in space and all the funny business going on. And that might be, uh, you know, decreasing, destabilizing effects. I even thought, gee, the, uh, the Vatican should put these around churches around the world or with good weather or something. And to be able, you know, they have a Vatican observatory uh, to be able to, uh, again, figure out, gee, is a space war start to happen? Uh, why is this guy coming really close to this other one? Why is this satellite suddenly stop working? You know, because all the countries are keeping this under wraps, what they're doing. Um, and they are doing things. I mean, why do we have all this seriousness and billions of dollars more in the space budget and things like that? I mean, space war has been happening, is happening now, and will get worse. Um, and you also mentioned about this, uh, um, the Navy, also uh, the different organizations, the military. And then recently, their news are talking about Army also started their Space Command and the Coast Guard. So it looks like many different uh, branches of military has their own individual uh, Space Command. So, oh, really? I hadn't heard the uh, Coast Guard. Yeah, I, I can follow you the link. Some, some of our members uh, forward that to me. Oh, okay. Uh, Coasties, they also have their Space Command. So you mentioned about the battlefield uh, management. So with those diverse uh, uh, space command and different uh, players, uh, who and how someone was going to coordinate all these for the battlefield management? Yeah, who knows if they're all coming together because they just want a piece of the funding pie. Uh, you're right. I mean, uh, isn't it the JCS, the Joint Chiefs, that are supposed to kind of coordinate this? I. I don't, I'm not enough into the politics and all to understand that, but that, that's certainly a good question for people uh, to understand how this is all working out. And, you know, all this is backdoor kind of stuff and Congress is involved. And uh, that's why they didn't uh, let the Space Force be separate from the Air Force, at least at first. You know, it's all these subtleties of organizational relationships that, you know, I don't understand. You need a PhD in that. Yeah, and also, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned the subtlety. I think that's a very great point. Um, so we don't actually have to shoot and make a lot of space debris. And of course, the space debris is another big issue. If, if uh, uh, you know, uh, somebody should shoot down the satellite, it generates lots of the space debris. Who is going to clean up the battlefield afterwards? Right. That, that's a very interesting point. And, yeah, I don't really understand, like, some commercial firms are putting space debris cleanup systems and countries and all like who's paying for that since it's not their debris. I mean, theoretically, 
according to the UN again, and the treaties that were signed, you're responsible for whatever effects, whatever you launch in this space has, whether it's falling on the ground and smashing through a house, or I suppose uh, debris hurting somebody else's satellite. So I think there's some legal regime for that. And maybe that's the reason why a commercial firm is going to do cleaning. I don't even know how you do that. I mean, it sounds so expensive. Uh, to do all that. And then I think a lot of it, you know, you look at the Hollywood movies of space debris and all that coming in and hitting your manned system and all that. And it just, I haven't really done any analyses, but it just seems to me if, all this debris is in the same orbit as you are, then it's not hitting you. It's, it's flying in the same speed and things like that. It's only if it's coming in eccentric, inclined, or, or something like that. But it's, it's not, I think, what you see in Hollywood. And yes, it has happened, and it will be happening. We, uh, we shouldn't have debris uh, as best we can. But you know, especially the animations, where you say, oh my gosh, look at all this debris and satellite bodies and, and all this stuff. Um, but the sizes of those dots are probably the size of cities. <laughs> you know, this actual debris, if it was two size, you wouldn't even be able to see it. You know, I mean, think about um, a lot of satellites are, or at least they're starting to, or the size of a basketball, you know, microsatellite and stuff like that. And if you told somebody, um, well, take this basketball and dribble it somewhere on earth and lose it, and then I have to find it. And oh, by the way, it's R squared problem where you're talking about tens of thousands of kilometers larger than the earth. So there's just, oh my gosh, there's a heck of a lot of space up there. It's hard to conceive of it. Uh, and it's not like the pictures you show with, oh my gosh, it's all this junk floating around and all that. It, and it's an issue and you should do something about it. And I think there's general rules of safing the satellite so it doesn't explode afterwards and trying to deorbit it or go into um, uh, graveyard orbit. But you know, there's funny business going on. I've developed software that looks at funny business in space. And it was like, gee, this uh, Chinese satellite went into graveyard orbit, yet its orbital elements are getting better with time instead of worse from solar pressure and all. Are they faking out that it's a dead satellite? You know, and there's just a lot of funny things that are happening. And, and I'm particularly interested in debris. Uh, <coughs> things, you know, faking out that they're debris. I mean, uh, there's... You could send up a commercial, let's say civilian uh, civil satellite. And, uh, and then again, went over Antarctica or somewhere, there's no sensors, South Pacific. Um, maneuver out a satellite out of it, from inside of it. And then uh, uh, blow up the satellite purposely. And they say, oops, our satellite, oh, I don't know what happened. It blew up, look at all this debris. And then everyone forgets about it where there's still that live satellite hiding in the debris. And, you know, what are you gonna do about it? Can you really detect it? Uh, I was in Cheyenne Mountain Complex one time, been there several times at the old SSC, before SMC was SSC, the Space Surveillance Center. And they told me a story about um, Mir, the Russian space station. 
where they have, um, you know, you flush the toilet a few times and then after a while they kick the honey pot out to burn up, I guess. Uh, and for a while, NORAD at the time tracked the honey pot as mirror instead of mirror itself, you know, a thousand times different in size until someone said, hey, the radar cross section is wrong, you know. So if that's just accidental, what if someone's purposely trying to hide? You know, and, and what are you going to do about that? And debris is a perfect place to hide. Besides hiding inside old 1960s spent rocket boosters that already did half of the Holman transfer to Geo. I mean, there's so many things you can do. Why not a zero degree inclined LEO low Earth orbit satellite? Uh, no sensors to detect it. It's not inclined. And all it has to do is increase its altitude. That's not too much delta V fuel. And it matches the orbit attacks all kinds of Leo birds without anyone seeing it. It's at the equator. It never, <laughs> it never passes any uh, radar sensor, though I think they're building one down there now. I mean, it doesn't take too much cleverness to fool people, especially people who think they know everything. You know, oh, I look at all these sensors and we know where everything's at. And uh, no one would do that, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, that's a wonderful point. I think Victor has a has a question. Victor, go ahead. Yeah, not related to the, the, the text in the chat, but I was wondering, you, was, you mentioned uh, shielding the public from uh, military action. So for instance, if you had space, we have space assets in space from all different countries, uh, adversaries and allies, and uh, what, um, what what has followed, for instance, if you wanted to shield the general public from what the military is doing, for instance, they had to disable or dismantle or destroy one of the adversaries' uh, spacecraft in space, one of their weapons in space. They did that. How would they uh, proactively uh, uh, go about shielding that information or masking it to, to where the average citizen and in case maybe some that maybe be able to track these objects, these space uh, weapons in space, how would they go about shielding those actions from the general public that, that, that wouldn't arouse or cause general concern or, you know, uh, hey, this happened today in space, well, what are they doing, you know? And so how, how do they do that? I mean, how do they, do they just do those actions and know that nobody know about it? Or how is it not protected, I should say? Well, um, my example of the uh, GLONASS attacks in the Ukrainian conflict. Does anyone know about that? <laughs> is it any news thing picked up on that? Um, what if you have a, a laser? Um, heck, I can go out and buy a seven and a half watt handheld laser. You had a laser that permanently damaged the focal plane of a satellite um, okay. as it came over. Does anyone, can anyone prove you did it? Does the person on the street know that? Can you plausibly deny, oh, I didn't do that. I don't know what happened to it. Does the owner of the satellite even know what happened? Um, so there's, there's no way to, to track the source of a, an offensive weapon. Well, I mean, you certainly, if you had laser detectors on it, and you can see, oh, it came from this part of the country. You'd see a flash or something. Uh, maybe you could say, well, my uh, uh, imagery sensor was pointed this way. I mean, you could do throw a lot of that, but I think generally the um, 
the attacked country and the country attacking like it being quiet, both of them, you know, surprisingly. Because I think as a president of the United States, you have all sorts of crap coming across your desk every week. And it's some of it is space, very little would be space, but special forces going around doing things, CIA this and that. And all of us sitting here, fat, dumb, and happy, you know, don't know about that. Right. And so that, that's kind of an established tradition, I think, uh, in, in many senses. Um, but as far as space, I mean, certainly cyber attack. Uh, and you can make the satellite spin out. You can make it maybe um, have its sensors point to the sun and burn it out. You know, um, I don't know. There's, you could make it... Um, uh, its radiators not point to deep space and it would um, uh, overheat the satellite. I mean, you do all this crazy stuff. I mean, I just came up with these on my own. I'm not saying that's what yeah. they're doing. But, uh, yeah. but, and how would anyone on the ground even know that? How would the, even the satellite operator know that? Right. So there, there's no way, there's no, for instance, there's no way you could, there's nothing that the general public or even the, the uh, most advocate, uh, Enthusiasts would have the equipment to detect any any type of action like that. Look up there. Well, uh, now for years there's been some group in Europe that loves uh, tracking satellites. Uh, they're a bunch of astronomers. Uh, the big way of tracking is not to say radar is optical. The radar doesn't have that much distance. And for years they've been you know trying to find uh, NRO satellites and you know all these secret satellites and things like that. And um, so they're kind of trying and they have these commercial networks uh, of optical sensors around the world uh, that, you know, certainly are tracking a lot of things. I would assume they have some sort of agreement with the U.S. government that they're not going to track certain things. I mean, one of the times I was in Norwich Shot Mountain, again, at the SSC Surveillance Center. Uh, they had yellow stickies that saying, do not track this object. Do not track this one. Sensitive object. We, um, we provide the UN catalog of space objects. I'm sure there's a bunch of NRO birds up there that are not in the catalog, you know, and things we're doing. Who's tracking? Uh, you know, the biggest threat now, at least in a peacetime level, is the inspector satellites. China has them. Russia has them. They'll probably say we have them. And you see things in the news, oh, this thing came too close and all. I mean, they're playing this cat and mouse game all the time up there. And why? Um, maybe they have a little pea shooter and they shoot at something or they attach a space mine or semi-high powered laser, you know, zapping this or, you know, and how can we even know that's happening and who's tracking them? And, you know, I said, uh, I'm a member of the, it's called Space Track. Uh, that you can join up and you get all the orbital elements. And uh, for years, I used to download the radar cross-section, you know, kind of the size of the, the objects. And four or five years ago, suddenly, instead of publishing the absolute RCS, you know, that they had measured at the time, they started publishing the average. And I assume that meant because inspector satellites were up there, I know, I've been on five programs since Spectre Satellites. Um, the RCS would change every time a Spectre Satellite came to another satellite, it would double or whatever. 
uh, and you could track where they're going from satellite to satellite. So I assume they stopped publishing it because of that. So they're trying to hide, you know, and that's good. Um, and maybe it's good that the general populace doesn't know this because even if they did know it, they're not technically savvy enough to understand what's really going on. Yeah, well, and even more. politically savvy enough, you know, and, and, and so it, uh, ignorance is bliss, I think, to a certain degree. And the same way I get back to, well, we don't understand what the CIA is doing all the time. And that's fine with me. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of bad things happening. Um, it's okay. Uh, Jerry has has another question. Uh, it's okay, Jerry. Go ahead to ask you. Hi. So, a uh, really interesting presentation. Uh, I have two questions. First, how far ahead of our adversaries do you think the United States is right now in terms of strategy and technology? And my second question would be: since companies like SpaceX are showing up in the news more and more, how do you think the advent of private space exploration will affect space warfare and diplomacy? Um, you're you're uh, taxing uh, an old man here. Uh, the two questions. What was the first question again? One question at a time. Uh, how far ahead of our adversaries do you think the United States is right now in terms of strategy and technology? You know, there have been space weapons for 50 or 60 years. You know, I just listed a few of those, the direct ascent, ASAT, and, and all that. Um, these guys haven't been you know, twiddling their thumbs for a while, well, for a long time. So, oh, I'm sure we got all kinds of brilliant technology, uh, but the brilliance is how do you use it? When, if, why? Um, so we, I'm sure we had brilliant technology with the GLONASS thing, yet we still lost, I guess, you know, because of doctrine. Um, so I think doctrine's everything. And I, I've been studying military history past 55 years. I got like 800 books on military history. And you look at um, World War II, I was born right after it. So that's what I studied a lot. Um, you have, uh, you know that the uh, uh, allies in World War II, the British and French had 17 times more tanks than the Germans. The Allied tanks had better, thicker armor and better guns on them than the Germans. Heinz Guderian, who um, you know, did all the, the Blitzkrieg thing, didn't even sit in a tank until I think three years before the Blitzkrieg you know, happened. Why did they win? Why did they have the biggest defeat of the 20th century? Uh, you know, with France, I mean, France lost 100,000 soldiers in that. Uh, why? Because the French used tanks like they did in World War I as infantry support. Why? Because they believed in the Maginot Line, who, well, by the way, was built by German firms for what that's worth. Uh, the Germans had superior doctrine. Why did they have superior doctrine? Because they lost in World War I. You learn more from losing than from winning. We've been winning too many wars. So what have we learned, especially with entirely different adversaries who are bigger and stronger in different cultures, different ways of thinking of things. And we sit here and say, oh, no, space junk, or oh, we better not do that, we better not do that. And they're thinking, kill them all. 
And, and so they don't mind creating space junk, I presume. Uh, they don't mind world opinion. Um, does that make us vulnerable? So you say technologically and doctrine, I would think in some sense, all countries are weak in doctrine because who knows how it's going to play out. I got a lot of ideas, but I don't know, you know, uh, but you better start thinking about it. And, you know, the, the old adage is uh, the first casualty of war, the plans, you throw out the plans. So it's not the plans, it's the planning that counts, that trains you to think certain ways. And I think that's one of the biggest things that the Space Force should be doing. Besides getting the organization right, you know, well, how do we use the, uh, you know, the Navy and the Army and all these other things? How do we use the allies? But how do we use them? <laughs> you know, how do we use, oh, we've got all these great systems. I'm sure we're spending billions of dollars on them. Uh, how do you really use them? At what points politically, what point of escalation on the ground? Can you have a different escalation ladder in space versus the ground? How do we support our allies? Um, what do we really do if, okay, someone takes out our satellite? Do we really understand what they did? Do we understand their intent? Uh, there's so many wars that have been caused by misunderstanding of intent. You know, oh, they were just a uh, show of force. And we interpret it as life and death and we started a war. You know, so the balance of ability, knowledge, and intelli uh, intelligent action, <laughs> you know? And if you, you gotta have all three of those or you lose, you know, I think. And it's, I think it's very easy to lose in space. I think uh, some clever adversary that doesn't care about political correctness, that is lucky enough to have the right general officer who understands space, and lucky enough not to have minimal interference from the politicians above them, like we'll probably have, is probably going to be the winner. And uh, surprise is everything. Uh, I think any country can develop space weapons. Any country has clever young kids who love cyber <laughs> attacks. And so you could always do cyber you always have universities with lasers and you got to have accurate tracking and all that for at least blinding or maybe damaging, you know, the, the high powered lasers, I don't know about ultimately the uh, military effectiveness, but it's just very clever people with a political, uh, cultural, social system different than us are going to have different ways of thinking and different ways of attacking. And who knows which way will be the best, but we should really start thinking about it now. And I, I think, oh, we're spending money in all these space systems before we even got the doctrine down right. Maybe we're wasting money on systems that won't actually be usable. And by usable, it means, well, what level of conflict? Some will be usable, like the inspector satellites, usable at lower levels, but not at full level conflict. Um, you know, they're not responsive enough. Um, they're, the different kinds of adversaries in different geographic regions might be different. Uh, you know, I heard things like, um, 
in North Korea, the Korean conflict. And well, you know, imagery satellites actually wouldn't be too effective because there's so many mountain passes and we know they're gonna come through the mountain passes and whether we have a picture or not didn't matter. Now, I don't know if that's really true, but you know, that's different than the open deserts in the Middle East or uh, you know, Straits of Taiwan or, or something, you know, that's maybe different flavors of space capabilities. And then I think one of the most important things, well, first of all, three or four most important things is SSA, SDA, understanding not only the adversary, but yourself, um, maneuverability, having plenty of fuel to confuse, get around. Uh, and as part of maneuverability is the um, uh, pre-conflict placement. Should you concentrate your ASATs over the Pacific or over uh, Europe? You know, India, I don't know. Uh, or maybe your different flavors. Lasers will work better in Europe versus, you know, uh, Taiwan. Or, or, so we should have a different flavor. You know, by the way, we should have, you know, again, this combined arms thing, two or three different phenomenologies of anti-satellites. Maybe going against the same target just to really be sure of it and increase the probability of kill uh, and, and stuff like that. Yeah, let's see. What was the second question? Uh, yeah, that made a lot of sense. Uh, the second question was, since we keep hearing about companies like SpaceX in the news more and more, uh, how do you think the advent of private space exploration will affect space warfare and diplomacy? Yeah, I don't know. Um, first of all, there's been a lot of talk of um, putting military capabilities on commercial satellites. Now, you know, I understand that World War II, we had commercial ships shipping arms. You know, by the way, getting sunk by subs. Um, putting commercial thing, I, you know, I think of um, the drones, the uh, UAS systems uh, that we used in Iraq and um, uh, Afghanistan. And they, uh, some of them used uh, commercial satellite systems to transmit uh, control of the drones uh, back to Creech Air Force Base, is it in, in Nevada? where the guys were, you know, uh, maneuvering them and blowing things up and all that. So it appears to me uh, that commercial satellite system is part of the kill chain. And I'm no lawyer, but it just sounds to me they're a legal target, you know? And so if you're using Intelsat, which is owned by a whole bunch of countries, and you're using one channel and you're transmitting this uh, kill chain information, does that make Intelsat a target? Does that make a ground control in France a legal target to be blown up because of it? Uh, you know, and so uh, this mixing and matching. And I've been at um, some of these exercises where uh, you know they bring, invite the commercial operators in, and the commercial people say, "Oh yeah, the Air Force is going to protect our satellite system." And I, I scratch my head and say, "I don't know how to even protect." Uh, Air Force satellite systems. You're talking about hypervelocities in space. You know, you're not going to have a 20 foot thick concrete wall defending you. You can't defend, really. That's part of the instability, maybe. That offense is everything, I think. I mean, they think, oh, I'll maneuver out of the way. Well, the guy's coming in fast. If he has sensors and see him maneuver, he just makes a slight course correction and keeps coming in, you know. Uh, I don't know how you defend 
those commercial satellites. So, you know, do you have to uh, reimburse them for $100 million, you know? And, and then they talk about, um, well, we use the um, uh, SpaceX uh, system with tens of thousands of communication satellites. And, and that means you'd have to have tens of thousands of ASATs to take it out, you know? And I think, ah, you know, they're all communicating to each other. And it just seems like one cyber virus in one goes to all of them, you know? Uh, one thing I've learned with the cyber is um, people are so damn clever. It's just, they'll always find a way. There's no way to absolutely defend. And so, okay, we've got SpaceX up there and um, I don't know, they're going to put a space station. Maybe I, I guess they're going to have their launch thing with a hundred people on it going to the moon. Are they expected to be defended against? Uh, let's say they go to the moon. I mean, ridiculously, they say, oh, five years from now or something like that. And they land on the moon and start a base. And China has a base on the far side of the moon. Would they start fighting? Do we start fighting out there? You know, China says, you know, I could conceivably see China launching uh, an astronaut to the moon in the next few years. And 10 minutes before boots on the ground on the moon, they advocate the Art of Space Treaty that says you can't own celestial bodies. And they say, no, we now own it. And SpaceX has a colony or tries to put a colony there. Uh, do we have to defend it? And we got space Marines now, you know, so that, that complicates things. I guess that's all I'm saying. Some people think it's a panacea to have all, um, more targets, I guess. And, and that's true to a certain sense you know, for survivability, resilience, and all that. But you're complicating things. And, um, well, that's beyond, uh, you know, that's a political social thing of, um, would you be able to tolerate uh, 100 people in a SpaceX spaceship getting killed on the way to the moon because some bad actor did it? And would you do something on the ground about it? That that make an interesting novel, I guess. So I guess I can't really answer the question. It's it's mysterious. Great, uh, Mr. Zagmanski, do you have time for another question from Victor? I think he has another question. Or you have to go? No, that's fine. Okay, Victor, go ahead. Oh yeah, mine was just related to you know a lot of. Your everything you based on satellites, satellites and, and uh, orbiting uh, systems. But what if, uh, has it been explored that uh, there's a possibility of actually stationing? Like you have a space station out there right now. Is it even talk around anything that kicked around as, as to establishing a military space, space station, military space station, where they can actually commence or they can, uh, they can, uh, Military operations. Two o'clock p.m. Uh, yeah, I mean the original uh, space station was supposed to be military. There's um, forget the name Mole M O L Man Orbital Lab from the oh. '60s, and that was the program. It wasn't the uh, ISS and things like that. Um, the Mir, uh, the Russian space station. Uh, I guess they claimed it was. Uh, civilian, but you look at the inside and it has a huge camera pointed towards the earth. 
uh, it had this, you know, anti-aircraft cannon on it and also, you know, good luck on it being civilian. I, I remember years ago, them asking the military, oh, do you want a base on the moon? You know, that sounds like a cool thing. We've seen it in Hollywood movies. And they say, oh, yeah, I don't know, you know, that's awfully far away and we can't really figure a good reason why we really wanted to be there. Uh, but maybe that's changed now that maybe the moon's becoming like the Western hemisphere. And, you know, even if China declares they own the whole moon, it's like, well, yeah, Spain declared the whole, you know, they own the whole Western hemisphere, but good luck on defending it and stuff like that. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe that's. A, I, I doubt a, they're going to put in a uh, uh, a manned uh, military station because that they, that takes so long and so much funding and and then you get to the point of again why what what exactly is the purpose? Yeah, I think Victor initially intended to add something like Star Trek military operation from well, space, like yeah. Star Trek. But yeah, I was part of it. Uh, you know, this is this is conceptualized relation, but uh, the, the stuff like that. It, it, but it, but it, it's eventually, it seems like to me, it would lead to uh, based operations in space, where you'd actually have a ship out there uh, monitoring, controlling it, it's, you know, for so many lengths of time, orbiting the space, orbiting Earth, just just to monitor the measured, you know, activities on the ground in space uh, from a ship. Uh, so yeah, it'd be an awfully juicy target. I tell you, even for a nuke or something, uh, I, I'm sure sooner or later. I mean, you see the Star Wars things and the spy, you know, Tie Fighters and all. It just seems to me the G forces on a manned system would just kill you, flatten you, you know, explode you, and it wouldn't be a very effective fighter with the guy on it. Especially, you know, he he can't he doesn't really understand the orbital dynamics inside his primitive part of his brain and uh all the calculations would have to be so fast the the maneuvering would have to be so fast uh, i mean what is he really doing now of course we'd still have manned if you're gonna go uh board somebody else's space station i guess and you know space marines i mean i'm sure i am wrong on that but i think i'm at least half right that Technologically, I mean, it's the same thing as um, unmanned uh, aircraft. But you operate zero, zero G, though. You're operating in zero G out there. So yeah, but not. Uh, you still have the uh, uh, centripetal forces and the maneuvering forces. You know, if you you suddenly have to. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, thrust the thrusting forces, uh, and you don't want to be in a projectable orbit because the guy will know where you're going. And so you're going to probably be thrusting around. I mean, uh, even in uh, aircraft, it's positioning's everything. Right. So you want to rapidly position on this side and that side, and, and you know, I would think, uh, and maneuverability would be the key, uh, especially if some missiles coming at you. If you could maneuver faster in that missile, um, even things like, uh, oh, lasers hang me. Well, I'm going to start spinning now to distribute the uh, power across me, you know, but the guy inside just got flattened. I don't know. I mean, uh, it'd be interesting to, to analyze all this. And I have a, a book coming out next year in uh, one of the chapters. Uh, 
I have a, uh, an author who talked about space settlements and it's fascinating, all the aspects of it. And you're almost talking about that and how you would maybe settle above the planet first and these kinds of things you're talking about and then colonize the planets. And, but there were so many military questions and that's what he got into of the different aspects of it. So it's certainly a fascinating field. Um, but think about, uh, what is it? The X-30 or that little mini space plane that's been going up. Um, it's not manned and it's been going up for over a year and it's gone up three or four times or something like that. And it's doing all kinds of, I'm sure, very interesting things, but no one felt a big need to have it manned. And as far as I know, there's no manned military programs at the moment, but it doesn't mean 50 years from now, there might be something else. Thanks a lot. Yeah, that might disappoint you. Uh, <laughs> this oh, it's, war it's, that's, that's war. That's, yeah. Uh, maybe 100 years. Uh, yeah, that's interesting because it also brought the interesting point if China launched attack uh, from the moon and, uh, on the satellite or something. That's another kind of, you know, aspect related to big um, Well, they're certainly worried about the moon, the military. And they oh. weren't worried about it just a few years ago. No one cared about it over my entire career, except just recently. And they're not going to get funding and do all this if there wasn't a really good reason. And I'm sure that reason is related to China in one way or the other. Because no one else is messing with the moon that I know of. Well, India, I guess, sent something in there. But... Yeah, they brought a very good point about earlier that uh, if uh, China attacked Taiwan uh, during a geomagnetic storm, and you won't really know whether it's from the, uh, you know, the solar wind or something, or it's actually uh, attack from China. It's very hard to tell. Right. Very good point. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the case you mentioned about the World War II, that's a uh, line, that's also very one, uh, good point, the strategy. Yeah, you had to worry about arrogance, that you know, overconfidence, that we know everything and we just spend 10 times what you spend on space. And so thus we will win. <laughs> and there's just over thousands of years of military history. That's the surest way to lose. Now that, that's the Heinz Kuterian, right? That's the general Kuterian. Yeah. He, he got fired at the end of World War II. Yeah, that was probably more politics, but uh, I think it was more that the German generals knew the war was over with, uh, but Hitler didn't want to stop. Yeah, this is very interesting, very exciting. So, yeah, um, of course, uh, he might have been a, a better general for Blitzkrieg versus set point battles. I mean, there's different kinds, uh, different flavors of generals, and there'll be different flavors of generals for space. Somebody who's good at working with the moon versus working at uh, Leo. Maybe. Uh, this is amazing point. Uh, he, he, I think he was, I heard some story, he was uh, kind of partially successful in fighting of, um, you know, a, a battle with uh, the Russian at that time. Uh, Zhukov was, was very upset because they thought they were going to have a landslide victory, but Guderian was able to hold them all for a battle or something like that. Uh, yeah. But you are right, he probably put that Pretty 
Uh, okay, so yeah, actually, I'm speaking. I have tons more questions, so, uh, but I don't see more questions from the audience. But um, so I, I think what happened is uh, next is uh, we will kind of call the end of the event today. Uh, but uh, if, if uh, you would like to stay a little bit longer and if some audience would like to stay to chat a little bit, that's welcome. Uh, but otherwise, we don't want to keep, uh, keep you for too long. Uh, uh, but if you want to stay and chat with some people who are going to stay here, that's wonderful. Okay. Uh, yeah, so anybody have any question? Uh, not, otherwise, we'll conclude that uh, event today. But you are welcome to stay a little bit to chat among the audience, or if the speaker has some more time to stay, you can know, ask him more questions. Uh, so thank you so much, and uh, this is a wonderful presentation. There are just so many exciting things. I personally have tons of questions. You know, I can keep keep going, but um, yeah. So but we'll good thing keep coming. You know, uh, uh, the speaker will come back again, and uh, we'll have this article as well, and we'll post this information also after the event, so you can welcome to look more into it. So thank you very much. So. Um, yeah, uh, have a good weekend. Thank you so much. And again, you're welcome to stay uh, to network a little bit. And uh, so otherwise, we'll stop the recording now. Yeah. Okay, thank you for your time then. Yeah, thank you so much. It was a wonderful, amazing presentation. Thank you so much. <laughs>